Hello, my name's Patty Johnson. And I'm William Pauheida. Welcome to Explain Me. On this week's episode, we're recording not quite live from Spring Break, the Art Fair. Uh, this is Art Fair week, so we have the Armory going on. We have the Independent, we have NADA, we have Spring Break, and Spring Break is where we spent a lot of our time. But I thought maybe just to begin, we might uh, talk about some of the fair differences to explain why we've spent a bunch of time on Spring Break. So, William, do you want to talk about, say, the Armory? Well, the Armory is a, a much larger fair. It's one of the oldest art fairs. It has um, takes over a, an entire pier with just its contemporary art section on the west side. And uh, it's really, you know, sort of a blue, ch- blue chip trade show. And you see a lot of familiar faces there. What you don't necessarily see a lot of are kind of curatorially driven projects like Spring Break. And uh, at this point, I feel like the Armory is pretty much a trade show for contemporary art. Absolutely. If you want to find a Jeff Koons, you go to the Armory. If you want to f- find a Dana Schutz, you go to the Armory. If you want to find an unknown artist, you do not go to the Armory. <laughs> there will not be any artists that you... Uh, that are virtually unknown and are just being introduced to the world at the Armory. Well, you might find some of those artists at Volta, which is a smaller uh, single artist booth show that's attached to the Armory. I think the Armory actually bought Volta and just incorporated it into its programming to give it that veneer of sort of single project uh, exhibitions instead of the kind of usual group show in a booth. Right, I think the name of the the fair conglomerate is something like Merchandise Mart or something like that. Yeah, out of Chicago. Yeah. So uh, beyond Armory, we also have NADA opening today. Right, which is the uh, New Art Dealers Association, um, and they run a fair that uh, really caters to emerging galleries. Yeah, I'm looking forward to going. I actually think I'm going to go tomorrow to see a friend. Um, Sing Min Lee is going to be doing a performance at, at the fair. That was also the reason I went last year, is my wife did a performance at, at uh, NADA. Um, but, you know, it is, it is the fair where the price points are, you know, 10000 um, you know, and below to some degree. It, it's, it's more of the affordable side of uh, the fair model, which it's probably just worth mentioning really briefly that, you know, longtime uh, team gallery dealer Jose Friere recently uh, published an interview with Andrew Goldstein in Artnet, where Jose just announced he's not doing any of these sort of big blue chip fairs anymore, like Armory, because you know he's lost at different points three hundred thousand dollars on a fair, one hundred and fifty thousand dollars on a fair, and is no longer going to kind of participate in this, um, in that model. And so, I do think Spring Break is is a different fair in the sense that um, it's not necessarily about sales in the way that Independent, um, which is another kind of fair alternative, the European model, as we were saying. Yeah, uh, everyone smells really good. Everything's very tasteful, very academic, and um, you know probably a little bit stodgier than Spring Break. Um, and Definitely spr- a little bit stodgier, but also, I mean, it's beautiful. It, uh, it takes place in Tribeca. The the um, uh, the building is just filled with light. Like if you want to see art in a beautiful space, that's the way to to do it. And yeah, it's more tasteful for sure. But um, I I really enjoy looking at art in that in that space. Well, I I may try to make it over to Independent. Um, but I do think that in general, there's a little bit of art fair fatigue going around. And a lot of it has to do with the um, financial pressures of having to rent both a physical gallery and then pay for art fair booth rentals on top. I even noticed a, a, a tweet by Roberta Smith noting that a lot of dealers, maybe at Armory, had chosen not to pay for the carpeting. <laughs> <laughs> Because every light, every outlet, everything that you get is like an extra cost uh, for the booth. So with that, um, spring break is a bit of, you know, the the alternative to the kind of more commercially driven art fairs where the emphasis is more on um, inviting curators instead of dealers to come in and bring the artists in to do installations and projects. Right, and um, they always begin with their own theme. The idea here is that the uh, the whole show is supposed to be a little bit more cohesive and 
I think perhaps try and it seems like it's about bringing a little bit more life into the fair because when you go to a, the armory or the independent what you find is a lot of packaged art you know everything is in a frame it's you're kind of removed from the art making process and that's you know very deliberate like when you're trying to sell something um, it's a lot easier to sell it when it's in the frame yeah, absolutely. And and those fairs are really for established brands. I mean, even Nada to a degree is sort of vetted and represents uh, a lot of sort of well-known emerging galleries where, you know, at, at spring break, you may very well discover an artist that you've never heard of before or curators or uh, artists coming from out of town. Um, I, you know, I don't know what the uh, participation cost is, but in the past, it's been like, I think something like 500 bucks. To... Yeah, really, the, the galleries just pay a uh, kind of security deposit. And uh, then I believe the fair takes a percentage of sales. Um, and one thing I do know is that the fair does, it's, it has a pretty strict sales policy. Like the everyone has to submit their prices before the show. And uh, the fair has rights to the sales uh, for up to six months after the fair. Right. So that gives the, the fair an opportunity to um, make some of its money back. Right, and we should probably note that the fair was started seven years ago, actually, by Amber Kelly and Andrew Gorey. Right, um, and so they're kind of considered pioneers in this field because uh, the, um, since then, I think there have been models like Satellite that have sort of tried to emulate that um, to one degree or another. I think Satellite never had the uh, exhibitor agreement model where you'd they'd take a percentage but the I think the ethos was fairly similar like let's focus on the artists and the curating and and see what happens yeah which takes off the kind of financial pressure to sell work to recover you know thirty thousand dollar booth cost uh up front so which actually is a fairly small booth <laughs> cost if you're going <laughs> to Miami where the Miami Basel where I think the booth started at fifty or sixty thousand dollars and that doesn't even account for shipping or the like staffing Flights, hotel rooms accommodation all of the meals entertainment i mean so yeah the investment in the art fairs has grown to be like a six-figure deal and a lot of galleries are at this point are starting to kind of question the efficacy and financial wisdom of participating in those kinds of fairs we should note that this is art fair week part one so later <laughs> yeah. in, in May, we'll also have Freeze, uh, which comes back to town. And Freeze has announced that they're expanding and going to be launching an L.A. edition. They can stay in L.A. I mean, everybody in New York hates going to the island. Like, it, it was supposed to be this thing that seemed like it was really collector-friendly because, like, then they'd have this whole island to themselves, their own private island. But really, it's a pain in the ass to get out there. Once you're there, you're kind of stuck there. Well, that's certainly true, and it kind of points to who the fair is for. It's not necessarily for artists or people that actually might be interested in what art means, but <laughs> where I think Spring Break is very much a fair for artists and people interested in discussing and talking about art and having new experiences and not just shopping for And work. I think also collectors who um, are perfectly fine spending less than $10,000 on an artwork. Yeah, I should note that my, my, my frenemy and probably pretty much enemy at this point, uh, the Belgian collector Elaine Survey noted on Twitter that he felt like the prices at spring break this year were a little too close to the other art fairs to justify uh, impulse purchases and or risk taking on the part of collectors. Well, he's wrong. I bought a piece for $15 at the fair, which we'll talk about later. But uh, Yeah, and I have, a, I have a piece in that same booth on reserve. Yeah. I, I kind of want to just maybe take a second and sort of like talk about that the kind of dominant sensibility before we dive into the specific themes that sort of we saw and uh, emerge. Sure, sure. Um, but I think, you know, like spring break pretty much like announces itself. Um, you know, spring break itself is people trying to have fun, you know, like to get away from the world for a little bit and go somewhere maybe exotic. And um, I just think of college kids, you know, going to an all-inclusive resort in Mexico or something and doing a lot of shots and partying. Um, but the fair itself does have that sense of kind of like fun and openness and accessibility. Um, and at the same time, I mean, I think this year's theme, A Stranger Comes to Town, um, 
and as it's narrated in that kind of dizzying press release, which I should note has a um, 20 item required reading and viewing list at we, the bottom. Okay, and just to interrupt you for a minute, we we actually read the press release. You guys do not have to, and we actually caution you against it. It's a it's really dizzying. Yeah, well, and I'd say I think that sort of nods to the kind of good times atmosphere that the uh, fair proposes, but it's being disrupted by something. There is this kind of specter. And for me, that seems to be a kind of metaphor for the long shadow cast by Donald Trump and the alt-right um, that, that kind of interrupts this, you know, the kind of fun sensibility of spring break. Um, and that, you know, in some ways that kind of the... Trump and the alt-right and conservatives certainly play on, on people's fears of otherness, of difference. And I think Spring Break, you know, as a fair, does a really amazing job of celebrating difference. And um, whether it's, um, you know, LGBTQ identities, um, there's a, a certainly a lot of powerful images of black bodies in the world, images of trans bodies and queerness, sexuality and desire that the show really celebrates. And um, I think, you know, I certainly found that there is uh, a lot of a kind of comic sensibility to a lot of the work uh, in the fair and um, a real sense of kind of play um, that, that tries to address these kind of more difficult and complex issues of related to kind of otherness and whether this work is pushing back against the kind of wave of xenophobia, racism, homophobia, transphobia um, that, that does add a kind of sense of urgency to the fair. But you know, through this kind of comic lens. I mean, I think I would add to that that the name Spring Break itself implies mm -hmm. um, a kind of uh, personality to the fair that um, we've seen over the last seven years, which is when you go there, you do expect a certain amount of fun and play, and that's, that's really part of their identity. So you do see that. I would say that the, uh, you know, what you describe as the long shadow cast by Trump and the... Um, sort of focus on um, identity and uh, more generally politics is is something that uh, has not been as dominant as in past years. And, and that clearly tracks back to Trump. Yeah, and I think a lot of artists have been feeling a lot of pressure. First, like, how can I even make artwork during this time period? Art might seem too internal or self-fulfilling or solipsistic or something when we need, you know, strident activism and public policy to combat this. But at the same time, you know, art is good at other things like getting into com the complexities of representation. So I think that the fair is, you know, in some ways really dealing. It's, it's a very political fair in a way this year. Um, and I think some of the themes that we can talk about kind of will get into that. Yeah, and I mean, I, th I think we, we had discussed this um, the other day, but I, I did feel that within the curation and within the, uh, within the themes that we saw, one of the things that sort of came up is a lot of times art and, and artists seem to be like asking the question, like, what do, what do I need? What do mm. we need? And then trying to find ways to, to answer that question. And that really came up in a lot of the themes that we that we saw throughout the uh, throughout the show, whether it be um, politics, whether it um, has to do with um, creating a narrative or like meditation or whatever, like there's all of these different things that that seem to kind of coalesce into um, answering these things. And of course, the the answers are all different because the truth is is that we don't all need one thing. Oh, of course. And certainly we don't <laughs> want to be advocating for a kind of one size fits all or some kind of purity. I mean, that's um, we can leave that to the Trumpers. Yeah. <laughs> Jeez. I know. Anyway, so the actual themes, um, you know, we uh, broke down a list. One of them uh, we, we saw was uh, Immigration and Borders. So uh, Goodbye Columbus, curated by... Um, Adin and Oyers, um, and I should actually just say that uh, pretty much every name on this list, I'm probably gonna. Yeah, I was reading that as Aiden and Ayers. Aiden and Ayers, it's yeah. probably that's how it's pronounced. Um, so they consider the uh, American nar narrative. There's a souvenir shop, uh, tips for new Americans living under Trump, curated by um, 
Genisa Sobalova, um, which is a series of sort of wooden sculptures, like uh, there's guns, a rocking horse, a large number of masks and figures um, with advice that say, like, don't hide who you are. Um, say hello to Facebook friends. And so anyway, so there, there's a lot of that. Um, and then we, uh, we saw sex, um, queer gender politics. So um, Macon Reed, Cupid, Ohala. Uh, there were the bathroom signs all over the fair. Which were notable for their, you know, trying to break down the gender binary. So you had, you know, um, men identifying bathrooms and women identifying bathrooms. Right. Let's see, what else? There was uh, Kate uh, Giordano's uh, Rome. The, those were uh, sort of, there were females cast as male nudes in this uh, sort of giant installation of, uh, uh, that included a lot of Rome sculptures remade in um, less than a week. Yeah, and also there was the material girls room with six female identifying artists presenting work about the female body and forms. Yeah, apparently that was inspired by aliens. Yeah, which also is another kind of uh, running theme that we noticed uh, science fiction and the kind of escapism. Yes. Maybe even a little bit of the kind of fantasy projection. Um, and that included Museum of the Future, um, Astro Bunnies and Astro Kitties, curated by Sarah Driver. Yeah, that was a room that was all dark except for it was painted black, and then there were these uh, Astro Kitties, for lack of... It, that's actually a very good title, all over the wall. There was also wellness and uh, meditation. So I think that... Uh, uh, Megan Reed had um, some speakers that I thought seemed to uh, relate to that theme. Uh, so Megan had basically a, a podium, a United States presidential podium where people and, and programming to go with it. So at 1 and 4 p.m. every day, there's a new speaker. Bobby and, and Spinache's Bobby's World. So that whole thing was, uh, you know, you lie down on a bed and uh, there are cotton balls surrounding you. You put on a pair of headphones and uh, get transported into a, a, a whole new world. Yeah, and I think we'll, we'll spend some more time talking a little bit about Bobby's, uh, the piece, the experience, and then also his, his uh, interesting press release. Um, and, and I should just say, I mean, I think Macon Reed's um, oppressing concern, as the project was called, uh, which is a kind of comic podium that where you can get up and kind of deliver pot potentially your own statement about uh, the United States or politics is probably one of the most Instagram friendly pieces in the show and really seems to be a kind of focus oh, yeah, for absolutely. the fair itself. I mean, I felt like a lot of the energy sort of circulating around that piece and a lot of concerns will probably thread through Macon's piece. Yeah. So protest art, there was a um, fair amount of that. Uh, Sarah Walco, um, did I say that name right? I think Sarah Walco. I think so. So she literally had signs on uh, machines that would sort of uh, move up and down. Um, Electric AB um, had a freedom school and a passport that you could get that would uh, make you uh, stateless. Um, there was uh, presidents who were assassinated. There are a series of paintings that was by Kim, Kim Bowie, uh, Alu. Jimmy, um, curated by Melinda Wang. Um, and then, of course, the last, last but not least, horror. <laughs> there was lots of horror in this. So we had the horrorscapes, which was a long corridor of paintings of skeletons and ghosts and ghouls. That was by uh, Michael Gr uh, Graugren. Um, and then... Uh, when Darkness Loves Us, curated by Kelsey uh, and uh, Remy Bennett. Which one? Which one was that? So that was the room that had a lot of kind of kitschy '80s horror memorabilia and representations of kind of horrific events, like little watercolor paintings of Heaven's Gate, V.C. Andrews book covers, um, you know, kind of flowers in the attic kind of stuff, with the two curators maybe performing as you know 
stereotypical horror film characters like the final girl or something. I couldn't quite tell. When we first came in, one of the, I think the curators or the artist was sort of posing amid a pile of kind of like strewn flowers and <laughs> stuff. Um, it is super cheese ball. Um, I think the press release is notable um, <laughs> for kind of how silly it is. Ridiculous. Um, yeah, and I mean, I think horror and sci-fi, uh, you know, kind of in the fantasy of, of a lot of the work um, that that's in the Spring Break Fair kind of get at some of the kind of escapist tendencies that when you're confronted with such a horrible reality as we've had for the last year since the election, um, I can really understand why artists might want to retreat into um, different time periods or project themselves into the future and try to reimagine, you know, the world in different ways. Um, but some of it just seems like straight up escapism, like, you know, I can't deal with reality. Right. I, yeah, there was something about this that seemed dated, but of course they worked that into the press release because like nostalgia was, was part of this. So those were the trends. I think things that you can expect not to find at the fair, uh, one thing, process-based abstraction. I think, you know, uh, zombie formalism, crapstraction, I think we're done with that. Yeah, there was not a lot of it. I mean, there's certainly some, you know, s scattered throughout the fair, but for the most part, almost absent. Yeah. You, know? you noticed that there was not a lot of live performance art? No, there was a lot of interactive and immersive experiences, but there weren't a lot of bodies performing for us in space. You know, maybe in uh, the Rome installation, there was a live performance. I think the artist was, you know, performing as one of her sculptures. But um, for the most part, not a lot of live performance going on there was a decent amount of painting but very little of it stood out um we thought that ryan uh michael ford's sci-fi uh painting stood out but um not too much beyond that uh food art that was that's that was a trend that came and went as pretty much as fast as it came um and there was a, a noticeable lack of food vendors <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, that was terrible. If you want to eat at this fair, like, do not expect to find Roberta's. They're nowhere. Do yeah, you make sure you eat before you go because you're, the, the fair is now located in Times Square. And so there's just a lot of overpriced, you know, food <laughs> around it. And, I think uh, we spent $40 on some burgers and guac yesterday. Yeah, at the, you know, sort of inappropriately named Brooklyn Diner. Um and, you know, I think another thing that we both noticed is that the map for the fair um, is just almost not readable. And they could really have printed it twice the scale or given us, you know, like use both sides or something, because this is just not helpful. Yeah. Anybody who wants to navigate the fair, um, I, I would suggest doing it by any other method than the uh, map that is provided because there's no way to read it it's in i mean i i don't even know how they got the the type that small it's probably it, like six points yeah or less this looks like a four point font i mean it is tiny so not the best that's point. not even a default no no <laughs> <laughs> i i really it looks like something that they were you know supposed to have printed on like tabloid sized paper and somehow it got down to like eight by 14 or something. I mean, it's tiny, 11. I don't know. You know, it's it's a really odd little thing. Um, so, you know, also just sort of moving along the medium trends, because um, this is something that everybody likes to talk about it, when you go to an art fair, like what, what are people doing um, and what are they using? Uh, at least at spring break, it's like tech everything everywhere. There are interactive rooms, there's VR, there's just everything. So there's the uh, Self on a Shelf curated by Christine Mealy. This is a room where you enter and you just like press a button on like, it looks like a bedroom. So you can like press a, a, a button on a shelf and then the walls will suddenly be illuminated with some video of like an abstract painting moving. And then you press a different button, say on an alarm clock and like, the, uh, the walls will then change and there'll be a projected video of something happening underwater. It's completely vacuous. I have nothing good to say about it, but um, there were multiple pieces 
Like there was another room that included minimalist sculptures that made a noise when you touched them. That one was curated by Gabriel um, Barcia Colombo Fu, and that was called Scoo Echo Chamber. Um, I think that might actually be the name of the uh, artist collective, mm -hmm. but literally you like touch like a square or something and it makes a sound. Yeah, I don't I don't even remember that. I know I remember the name Foo Scoo, but uh, I, I certainly like some of the works in the show just didn't leave any kind of lasting impression. And I know that's a risk, you know, when you're looking at hundreds of installations involving, you know, twice as many artists. Well, I mean, I th I don't even think it's a risk. I think it's a it's um, or an part effect. of the show. Yeah, yeah. Like, I mean, because what do people say? Like, ninety percent of everything is bad. I don't even know what the actual statistic. Yeah, and, and in this is. case with the fair, I mean, it's you know, there's some notable bad things. Most of it was fine and good, That's the and thing, certainly yeah. going to appeal to different audiences with who have different tastes or preferences for their level of whatever they're interested in terms of art there's a lot of stuff in the show and i think you know it's pretty clear that we're not going to be able to talk about more than like 20 percent of you know the work that we saw at the fair even though this is probably the most time i've ever spent at a single art fair oh it definitely is for me too and actually i did want to point out that there is something really kind of significant and almost luxurious about doing that because i felt like this was the one time, and I mean, I've been in media for a long time, and I've been covering art fairs for a long time, but this is the one time where I felt like I actually understood the fair after I had been at it. Like, I had, because four hours is literally, like, it, it simply is not enough time for any single human. I don't care who you are. You could be Superman. You still will not understand that show in that amount of time. It's not humanly possible. Yeah, you know, you just reminded me, though, of the fact that another thing that's kind of missing from the fair is there's not a lot of video art. There's not a lot of art that asks no, you to stop and actually spend that's true. 20 or 30 minutes with a particular piece. Well, there's not any work that asks you to do that unless it's a VR experience. Well, the, yeah, we watched the VR movie. <laughs> but that was still, it was only maybe five minutes. Yeah. Unfortunately, I couldn't hear it. My the audio was so low that, and it was also competing with another piece really close to it that just had super loud audio that nobody was wearing headphones for. So yeah, just for viewers, that was in the Harvest Works room, and if it, there is a quiet moment, it's definitely worth watching that movie. Mm -hmm. It was a meditation on um, Second Life, and when you put the VR headphone uh, headset on, they also give you popcorn, which at that particular time was so needed. Um, I was starving. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so that got me, that bought me an extra 15 minutes at the fair. Right. And so and beyond the kind of uh, tech dominant and, you know, a lot of interactive rooms, there certainly was a low, there was tons of wallpaper. Oh, enormous amounts. You know, I, it's interesting why so many artists would want to figure out like, you know, I need something a little bit more than just my painting, so I'm going to add wallpaper. I don't know if it was the rooms themselves that people just wanted to cover up some of these office rooms or make them more inviting, but... I think, yeah. personally, I think it has to do with um, making the room photo-friendly because, like, as we've discussed sort of off the podcast, one of the things that um, is sort of a media hazard is when you only have four hours and you really have to sort of think about, like, what is the thing that is going to look good on my blog and get people to uh, um, click on it? It really is an image that looks very complete. So the difference between something that is photo friendly and good art sometimes is, uh, I think, difficult for a journalist to tell in that amount of time. And we, we've seen that because, you know, I can't even remember the name of the, the artist, but there was a whole installation. Um, it was a photo installation where the wall was made up of flip-flops. Oh, yeah, yeah. And the actual photos were these, like, weird, like, Cindy Sherman knockoffs of, like, you know, the, like, the, the doll works with the different sort of collaged um, body parts, but, like, the most cheesy versions of them. And it was actually the first thing that I took a shot of because I thought oh this looks good and then I looked at the photos and I was like oh actually it's not so like the art isn't that good but this is 
anyway, it showed up on the artsy site. Yeah, there there was a lot of things that, you know, sort of dressed up the art as an installation, but may not have been terribly good installations by themselves. Yes. And so wallpaper seemed to be one of the kind of ways to just immediately announce that you were making an installation, even if you were really mostly a painter. <laughs> well, that's true. And I mean, I think we saw that with Ryan Ford, um, who uh, made... I think his wallpaper was uh, drawings printed on vinyl. Right. But they were like little drawings of airplanes, mm -hmm. which I don't know. I actually kind of like that. Um, uh, but <laughs> now that I'm on the spot to explain why, I'm not sure I, I could accept that there was a kind of personal element to it that I liked. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, speaking of Ryan's work a little bit, they're, they're, there was a, also a preponderance of sort of like lumpy, cartoony, comic sculpture. And that alongside Michael uh, Ryan's painting, there were also kind of small sculptures that came off the wall. And I'm not sure those were his or another artist in the space. No, that was another artist. Okay, yeah. Um, but there, there was a pr like several installations of like brightly colored sculptures. Um, you know, most notably probably Macon Reed's cartoon press secretary podium, um, and also uh, Eric Mistretta's installation, The Wrong Place, and Zoe Sch uh, Schlachter's sort of lumpy weavings. So, you know, it, it, there was a lot of kind of like sort of super comic work. Right. Um, is that it for the trends, I think? Well, there was a lot of VR. We definitely right. saw. <laughs> well, we know. covered a lot of that, too. Didn't you go into a, a VR painting? Oh, I did. It was terrible. I actually have that listed under bad art, but we might as well get that out of the way right now. <laughs> that was uh, called Rigio Body, um, and that was curated by Maria Kozak and Jane Hamill. Um, and... Basically, the whole thing is that you can put on this headset and walk towards an actual physical painting, but this time you get to um, navigate through giant slices of paint. Uh, so, a couple things. First of all, the paint doesn't. The painting didn't look anything like the painting in front of you, so you were not. I I don't know like the physical painting, so I don't know whether that was it was if it was supposed to look like that. It didn't. The second of all, the concept is really cheesy. Like there, I mean, I wouldn't even call it a concept. Like it's just a thing that you do. But like the the conceit seemed to really lie in the wonder of the technology, right? So the thing that's really exciting is not that you're walking through a bunch of paint because who cares, but that you're physically able to move chunks of paint around in the air and really get inside this thing that you know somehow there's this idea that you might understand it better if you can take apart all the different parts but yeah i get it i mean i one, I, I guess my feeling about it is that the the novelty factor of a lot of this technology has worn off and doesn't kind of deliver the same you know wow factor that you know some of this art may have done a couple of years ago at the same time, like, I think the artists, our concepts need to catch up to the technology because right yeah. now it's kind of one note. And uh, there were a couple of augmented reality pieces that I ran across that were glitchy. And if they did work, it was like, what am I looking at? It really wasn't that interesting. And so, you know, again, I think a lot of the value of the work is still in the fact that people are able to, like, make something happen with it. And it's just not good yet. It's going to take some time. No, well, and but this has been a, a problem that I think has dogged technology and artists for the last 10 years at least because, um, you know, I remember when I first started looking at the uh, Layers app, which would uh, sort of overlay, you know, it would be geolocated, so you'd have to point your phone in a particular space and then you'd find this, like, animated something and what was it? Like, who cares? That, that was sort of the whole thing, right? Like, it didn't matter what it was, only that you, you could put your phone up and find it. You're using the technology, but you haven't really brought anything to the table. Exactly. So, so there, we're still suffering from that. I mean, in this, in this case, like the, the, uh, the VR painting, I, I think that 
you know, a lot of the problems that you laid out with other works that where they were glitchy or things like that st existed with a painting too. Like mm -hmm. there were certain bits of paint you could move around and others that clearly like, oh, it just didn't work. Right. So e even the technical execution, you kind of, I kind of felt like I, I was left wanting for more, but I mean, honestly, it wouldn't have fixed the piece. So, so among the other bad art that we saw, should we? Oh yeah, the fish tank paintings. <laughs> Those were terrible. <laughs> There's a room full of fish tanks that have uh, long paintings that may have been dipped in or come pulled out, out of, of. Pulled out of. Um, I mean, this is yeah, it is one of the few instances of a kind of process-based uh, abstraction that's in the. <laughs> in the the entire fair um and you know i think there's a a note that like did we get the artist's name for this and this is one of those cases where like i don't think we should even bother naming the artist yeah no it's probably best to just omit it um there was also the saran wrap counter i noticed that that showed up in like zero highlights um it's called a couple of geese over phoenix which, you know, I think is a very appropriate name because I felt like that entire installation was like a veritable gaggle of post-internet art cliches, you know, like wrapping things in saran wrap or uh, layering objects into resin casts so you can see through the frame. I mean, these are like tropes that, you know, we've, we've been living with for over five years now. And this show encapsulated <laughs> all of like the kind of worst color tendencies of CMYK and just... Don't do it. My favorite thing was the like, little cubes that had been 3D printed and were just like suspended in the saran wrap for no apparent reason whatsoever. Like they, they were just there. Yeah, you know, it's always hit and miss at spring break. You're getting curators who, you know, are a little bit late to the game or something, you know. So it's just funny that, you know, the, the kind of novelty of an aesthetic like post-internet art could so quickly become like almost a cliche and it's so apparent at the art fair you'll know it when you see it right uh so the cheetos art um seems like there there may be some people who disagree with us uh about the uh, cheetos art being bad that was by andy Harmon, and these were sort of people-sized uh sculptures that look like cheetos they were um expandable foam that had then been wrapped in a uh, Cheeto color velour. Uh, there was some thought that perhaps this um, reference to Donald Trump color. No, no. Uh, in, uh, in, I guess it's Sarah Cascone. Um, her Artnet report, she, she quoted the artist and he said, uh, that is a really unfortunate collision with my work. So ostensibly, these large Cheeto bodies are not a critique of Donald Trump. Um, I, I, when I saw one of the pieces, it's a piece of marble leaning up against a, a like a kind of limb of the Cheeto with a shoe on it. <laughs> I immediately had to tweet at Greg Allen and the real Hennessy being like, did you two collaborate? Is this like what you would make if you just found some trash on the street and put it together? Um, <laughs> because they, I mean, they have an ongoing. They have Twitter an ongoing kind of joke about the kind of stuff you can make just by, like, you know, finding things on the street that would look like really interesting kind of contemporary art assemblages. And Andy's work really it kind of did that. It evoked that for me. I mean, I think I had talked to the artist about his uh, his work because I was interested in what was underneath the velour and I found out that it was the foam so I said to him I was like okay so this work has a lifespan of what five to seven years before it starts to shrink and he was like no long time <laughs> and I owned a piece of like a piece that was made out of foam and that was I mean I think five to seven years is generous <laughs> it doesn't last that long I'm just not sure anyone's going to be able to tell frankly, if anything, those things mutate or warp or kind of collapse in on themselves. It might be a, a I think at some point they may be, they may diminish to actual Cheeto size. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's a living a, artwork. <laughs> that'd be a good thing. Um, what else? Um, oh, oh, so there was the Cade Tompkins projects. You know, that, the artwork itself just seemed to be kind of earnestly 
bad figurative art. They were large scale, maybe woodcut prints. The thing that bothered me the most about that, it was the kind of curatorial branding, like CT, you know, sort of laid out as a logo, the artist's name sort of printed very large on the wall. It just was a lot of kind of like, you know, commercial gallery branding that you don't expect to see at spring break. And I just would encourage dealers or young carriers, don't do this. Like, don't. It's a terrible idea. And it's definitely, it's something that has been done multiple times. Like there was one gallery, I can't remember the name, they used to run at Pulse and they always ran this like bit of silver at the top of their gallery. And then, <laughs> and this was like somehow connected to their logo. and it always looks super terrible because I, I mean you don't need a lot of bad graphic design to support the art like ideally the art will do the work for it for you and I mean this is work that's not going to do a lot of work for you but it's not helped <laughs> by the branding right. and then also I think uh, my the, the worst paintings that I saw in the fair belonged to the show Horrorscapes and which, you know, you kind of mm, at the end of the viewing thought did photograph well, like the dark corridor with TVs that had like faces stenciled onto them so you could see the static in the positive space. But these these little paintings were just sort of really poorly attempted Gerhard Richter smear paintings. And one was like Michael Myers mask turned inside out. And so, you know, I could, I could, I could imagine somebody being like, this will make a great Instagram moment, but those paintings themselves were just terrible. And, and I love horror films, you know, like I'm a huge fan of the genre. So I felt like a kind of double disrespect. I'm like, come on, man, you know, or whoever made these things. Um, they, they, they were the worst paintings that I saw. I think they outdo the fish tank paintings. No, the fish tank paintings are definitely worse. Like, I think that these were put in dark light for a reason. Like, <laughs> don't get me wrong. Like, they, they're not going to stand up. But he did have that fully realized ghost at the end of the corridor, which was terrible, too. But um, I think represented a, a larger effort. You know, I'm not going to go to bat for the paintings. I, I kind of like the staticky cheese ball like silhouettes at the end of the corridor. I yeah, thought those the, were there was a novel use of static. I'll give it that. You know, yeah, like it was I haven't very seen poltergeisty. Yeah, someone try to just use straight television static as, you know, art and So overall I think that that installation had more to offer than the uh, fish tank paintings, especially because the fish tank paintings like those were a lot of fish tanks, like, just shoved into a room, too. Like, it's not even, like, the exhibition design was that good. Well, I'm, I don't have any sympathy for, like, bad abstraction, whereas I do have sympathy for, like, a, a, someone trying to render Michael Myers' mask, you know? I'm like, <laughs> come on, I this is a subject that's near and dear to me, and, you know, this is not a great look for it. Um you know, and I, I just think it's worth sort of noting that, you know, there's there's a lot of artwork at spring break. And for something to be so bad that it actually sears into your mind and becomes something worth even discussing for a few minutes is a kind of notable achievement, you know, in a fair that there's a lot of good work, just not terribly interesting, you know, yeah. or worth discussing. So um, kudos to the to the, these bad artists. Who stood out. Who stood out. All right. The crowd. Well, now we're going to end this segment sorry, with a feature that. that includes some of the best pitches we've heard. So we asked a couple of gallerists, uh, well, not gallerists, curators and artists to send us their two-minute elevator pitch uh, so that you all have the experience of being at the fair. This is Lynn Sullivan, and I co-curated with Dominic Duran an exhibition titled Hours for Spring Break Art Show, found in room 2208. We set out for the show looking for handcrafted objects that had been separated from their maker. For most of the works, who made what we found is unknown. In separate searches over two months, purchasing only from U.S. sources found in yard sales and eBay, we gravitated towards objects that don't reveal much. I pick things that depict what surrounds the body of the now physically invisible maker, things like shoes and houses, chairs, furniture. They shift in scale, and most are minuscule or miniature, and a few are almost life-size. They appear mostly to be made for home, for self, for friends. 
they are objects that are a bit less fixed in function and role. Uh, some information, of course, about provenance is visible in all of the works. It can be seen in the traditions of form or in the type of shared craft technique and in the interesting decisions made in production. Materials like scrap wood and cigarette cartons, uh, matchsticks, tin cans, nutshells, all signify a different history and economy of means. The often intricate labor indicates time and raises questions about who has that time free for reasons good and bad. Presented all together, I hope the objects take on other sets of relationships and open up many questions about the individual, the collective, precedence, use, labor, value. If the theme of spring break this year is stranger comes to town, we asked what happens when you can't see the stranger? How do you see and read the object that is left behind? I'm Amanda Nedham. This is Kyle Hitmeyer. We're the curators for the last equestrian portrait at spring break, room 2352. We're also exhibiting alongside Rachel Grobstein, Christopher K. Ho, Tima Uzdin, and Clement Vallo. So the last equestrian portrait focuses on the history of the representation of the horse a symbol that we have used for tens of thousands of years to punctuate important technological innovations, from the cave paintings of Chauvet to the photographs of Moybridge. We also use horses in equestrian monuments, and last year, as the merit of a lot of these statues was being called into question, we thought it was a good moment to pause and close that bracket of history in order to ask the question of whether we thought we could still define ourselves in adjacency to these animals. If the artists in the show are not explicitly using the horse image, then they're all working with subverting monumentality. The second thread of the show focuses on mistranslation in the service of interrogating systems. We have artists like Rachel Grobstein, who paints bedside table portraits using photographs that are passed on to her from around the country. There's Christopher K. Ho, who reimagines Thomas Gainsborough landscape paintings by using La Prairie facial moisturizer cream to pass these bucolic scenes through uh, capitalistic filters. There's also Clement Valla, who using scripting and coding explodes 3D scans of museological artifacts and kind of rebuilds them as ghostly remnants of monuments. In April, Amanda and I are going to be co-creating a show at a new space in Lower East Side called Super Duchess at 53 Orchard Street. So please come by and check it out. Hi, my name is Kumasi J. Barnett. I'm a painter from Baltimore, Maryland, living and working in Brooklyn, New York right now. I'm in room 2227 of Spring Breaks Art Fair in a show curated by Jacques Lahav who works with the Midnight Society, has a space called 42 Social Club in Lyme, Connecticut. The show is called Stop It, White Man, You're Wrecking the World. I've been working on a series of comic book interventions. I take comic books from my collection and alter them in subtle ways to change the narrative. In each, I try to alter as little as possible to change the meaning and start up a new conversation. Like It's, it's about starting a new dialogue with each comic. Some of the touches are small bits of color to completely rework covers. I've been doing it about the last three years. About three years ago, I had something I couldn't express in my other work and looked at the boxes of comics that I've been collecting since the 80s and 90s as a child and pulled some of those out and used them to express exactly what I was feeling in, in different terms. I trained as an abstract painter, so I've been doing abstract paintings forever, rich, lush, like color filled paintings, like paintings with individual brush strokes and some with drips using some paintings to make other paintings. And I just couldn't really express what I wanted to in those paintings at the time. What I did was I took some of the old comics that I had, like The Amazing Spider-Man, The Hulk, uh, action comics, and I used them to change into a narrative that would express more what I was feeling. They're like little history paintings. I've been told they're really topical, but I think you could take them and drop them anywhere in American history and they would work for what's happening at the time. Like uh, the amazing Spider-Man becomes the amazing black man uh, dressed in his iconic gray hoodie, battling new types of villains and just struggling to survive. And then we have racist comics, which used to be action comics. 
My name is Mark Joshua Epstein. I'm an artist and an educator and an occasional curator. And for spring break, I worked with co-curator Will Hutnick, who is also an artist and the residency director at the Wasaic Project. For our show at spring break, which is called The Songs Make a Space and is in room 2305. The Songs Make a Space is a project presenting some of the work of the late composer-lyricist Michael Friedman, who died at the age of 41 this past September of complications from AIDS. Michael was really well known in the musical theater world, especially in New York, but his work isn't that well known in the art world, and we wanted to do a crossover where we were able to introduce his songs to a new audience. The project that we're focusing on is one of the last major projects that he did. Um, we're showing songs from the State of the Union Songbook, which is a project he did alongside WNYC and the New Yorker Radio Hour. For this project, he went around the country during the 2016 presidential primary season, interviewing people about their political leanings, their backgrounds, their ideas for the future, and who they might vote for. And he took these interviews and put them verbatim into songs, so they are edited for length and clarity. Our booth at Spring Break presents seven of these songs. Six of them are sung by Michael. One of them is sung by Crystalyn Lloyd, um, who is a Broadway performer. And we've set the booth up with headphones so that people can sit and listen to the songs. And we've gridded the space. So the walls are a teal color with a hot pink grid line. And the reason we've done that is we're also inviting people to do drawings or writing in response to what they hear in the songs. And then as the show continues, those responses get hung up on the wall. So the space becomes a kind of evolving group show um, over the time of spring break. We felt really strongly that we wanted to give people time to respond because Michael Friedman had done this project where he's privileging all different kinds of voices and we wanted to, to the best of our ability within the context of an art fair, to be able to privilege as many kinds of voices as possible, make them known, make them seen, and make them heard. For us, it's really a privilege to present Michael Friedman's work. We didn't know him personally. Um, we used to listen to his songs sometimes while we were working because we would listen to New Yorker Radio Hour and they really affected us. So we thought we would bring them into the Spring Break Fair. Thank you.